It's getting people to listen to each other. It's allowing people to make mistakes. It, you, you have to lead from where you're open. Um, you're open to listening from the most junior person at the table. Welcome to the Trailblazing in Color podcast, where we talk to change makers and innovators focused on upending systems not designed by or for them to create a more inclusive and equitable world. I'm your host, Sarah Chapman Becerra. Welcome to the show. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of the Trailblazing in Color podcast. I am very excited to tell you a little bit more about today's trailblazing guest, Grace Corey. Grace is a biracial Black woman who graduated from Parsons School of Design with a major in fashion design. She rose through the ranks of the fashion industry to become a senior executive at Ralph Lauren, Michael Kors, Calvin Klein, Spanx, Victoria's Secret, The Gap, J. Crew, and Speedo, among others. Grace is also an entrepreneur and was the co-founder and CEO of a skincare brand, Biofile, which has been featured in Vogue, Forbes, Elle, and Marie Claire, and was sold in over 30 retail stores in three countries. Today, we'll be talking about how her personal and professional life experiences have helped her build high-performing cross-generational teams, pave the way as often the first or only biracial Black woman in her environments, and led to a passion and commitment for creating more equity in the world. Grace, I am so excited to have you here to share your wisdom. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for inviting me. I'm so excited to do this with you today. Oh, good. Me too. And I wanted to start by congratulating you on your recent nuptials. Congrats on your wedding. Thank you. The feature in the New York Times. How was that experience? Wow. It was wild. I never expected that to happen. Uh, Talk about a LinkedIn post going viral, somehow ending up with the New York Times at our wedding. Yeah. We'll share your LinkedIn in the show notes too, so people can go back and see how that transpired. But also, we'll share the link to that New York Times article about your wedding. So congrats on that. I wanted to start our conversation in talking about your experiences as a biracial Black woman, especially in the fashion industry and where you've come from. And I know our I am also biracial and Black, and our experiences are very different also being in different generations. So we'll talk about that too. But I wanted to start with the question of how has being a biracial Black woman impacted your experiences both in and out of the workplace? And what have been some of those challenges in regard to this intersectionality of your identity? Um, I think it's a great question. And I think what's really interesting and what most people don't realize is that there are a lot of ways you can be biracial. I am a biracial Black woman who was raised in white culture. And that's really a distinction of mine because in the workplace, that meant that I probably had certain advantages because I just didn't know I wasn't like everybody else. That wasn't part of my upbringing. And so people found that I was easy to relate to. I was one of the quote unquote good ones. I didn't even think that was a bad thing to be, just was what I was. On the other side of it, there were a lot of Black people who thought, oh, she's a Tom. Oh, she thinks she's white. Literally, those words have been said to me many times in my career. And so it took a long time for me to even know how to navigate this. I didn't really even know any Black people. You know, as you mentioned earlier, I got married recently and I think everyone looked around and said, Everyone Grace knows from her past is white. 
because that's the culture I was raised in. So I think that really had a lot to do with what it was like, both in my work experience and outside my work experience in my dating life. You know, there just wasn't anything else. And yet it was having an effect on every part of that. And I just thought, oh, that's just something I've got to put aside and push away and ignore. I didn't address it for a really, really long time. So it's really only fairly recently that I've come to terms with this. And so I am constantly reminding myself that I'm a biracial Black person raised in white culture because even I have to remember. Mm, I resonate, of course, in different ways, but I do feel a lot of connection to this not knowing where you fit and being raised in white culture predominantly with Black culture around me as well, but predominantly and what we were surrounded by growing up is this assimilation that we're coming into and we're not seeing a lot of people, I would imagine you also didn't see a lot of people who looked like you or came from a similar background, racial background as you. How did that show up in in terms of now you're in the fashion industry, so you went to school for design. How did you know you wanted to go into the fashion industry? I'll start there and then I'll follow up with some impact questions back to identity and how you've navigated that as well. So what got you into fashion, Grace? Sure. I think I wanted to get into fashion from making clothes for my dolls when I was a kid. Um, We weren't actually allowed to have dolls because they were racial. We were allowed to have trolls because they were of no race and not even human. Um, You know, so again, this was reinforced in my upbringing over and over again. And there was just no doubt about it. I learned how to make clothes at a very young age. I learned how to drape, sew, pattern make, everything. That was just a natural part of my very being. But my parents were academics and they did not want me to go to fashion school at all. So my mother had passed away and I really decided this is my moment. I have to do this now. And I asked my father if he would support me through this. And he said, absolutely not. And my response to him was, everyone I know wears clothes. And he had no doubt about that, but he still couldn't imagine it as a career pursuit. So I paid my own way through it. And I didn't think again of myself as a Black person going into a white industry because it is a primarily white industry. I was just thinking about this is something I love to do. And so this is what I'm going to do. And then, of course, when you get in there, there were very few other Black people there. And they were all kind of coming over and starting to talk to me as if I was a Black person raised with some Black culture. And I really just didn't understand the connection. So again, that pushed aside a bit. Because I was more in tune with the dominant culture, that helped me rise through the ranks, although I was losing a big part of myself that I just didn't have any understanding of until much later in life. Mm. Well, kudos to you for being so courageous so early on to say, this is, I know what I'm passionate about and I'm going after this and supporting yourself on that journey. And then coming into this space where still not exactly knowing where you're fitting, and also this part of sacrificing part of yourself. What was coming into that self-discovery? What was that like to to say, I, I want to acknowledge how this biracial experience has shaped me and start to talk about it more openly? Yeah, it started to happen kind of synergistically at Ralph Lauren. And this is now 20 plus years into my you know experience in the fashion industry. For the first time, there was a Black person who was a director level who reached out to me and actually made connection and asked me to be part of a mentoring group. And I said, yeah, I want to do that, even though 
it was really very foreign to me. And I definitely felt like I was like looked at as like, oh, she thinks she's white. But I said, no, I want to do this. And the fact that she had invited me in meant so much to me that I, I got, was getting as much as I was giving in that mentoring experience. I was becoming like, oh, this is a culture and I can be part of it. I definitely don't feel comfortable now, but I don't mind the discomfort because I realize I'm touching something that I've never touched on before. And then five years ago, when I met my husband, we were met on a dating app and he's also biracial and also has not really dated in black culture. His children are, again, biracial and more white than we are. And we were now two people who were biracial who hadn't ever really experienced so many others like us before. And we got to have conversations that neither of us had ever had before. And that was really interesting. Then George Floyd came and then there was not, I was not alone having conversations or not alone just, you know, in my head with these things. I actually had someone I could talk to about it and all kinds of new things came up. One of his children who looks very light, but definitely considers herself a Black woman. She said, I have had to spend my whole life listening to other people talk about Black people because they didn't think I was Black. And then I have to step in as a child and say, no, my father is Black. You can't say that in front of me. And I thought, oh my God, I think of the pain and the things that were withheld from me. And then here's somebody who has that experience in a very different way. That's one of the reasons we got connected in the first place is through another acquaintance who is also biracial. And now it's like we want to meet, we all want to meet each other <laughs> because I do feel like my whole upbringing, I didn't have an opportunity to have these conversations either. And then I met my now partner who is also bi- biracial and black. And I know I've shared this with you before because I was inspired by your love story. But yeah, these were the conversations that we got to have with one another about not being enough or feeling like others choose for us who we are and what we identify as and have these conversations that I've never, I'd never gotten to have before. And it led me to going through a group coaching program specifically for mixed race individuals because I do feel like our stories have been largely untold and so we're left to quietly figure it out ourselves because we can't really go to our parents either. They don't have the same experience. So I really appreciated that you are you're sharing it now and talking about it more because we need these stories. And it's surprising how many stories there are. I now coach um, a group of USC students. They're all women. They're all they all identify as Black women. And I was sharing about biracial experience, and it turns out every single one of them identifies biracial. We think we're just this small group, but we're actually a very large group with no place to have the conversation. But once you start bringing it up, people are so quick to tell you, oh yeah, I'm that too. And let me tell you about my story. And by the end of this last session I had with them, we were doing a cohort. I think we were all in tears. You know, we had all, I was hearing them now, you know, going through some of the same things that I went through being called the Oreo and you think you're white and those types of things. And they were hearing me talk about my experience and they've never heard somebody older than them talk about these things anymore and so freely. And I think, again, this just has to open up because I think there's a lot more of us out there than we ever have acknowledged. And it's so helpful to hear these experiences, not even if you are biracial looking for other 
biracial or mixed race people to connect with, it's it's like we all need to hear these stories because their stories often going against the status quo and and doing something taboo and controversial, which is having an interracial marriage. And it's steeped in and it's also like I feel such a deep connection to the trailblazers before us, which are our ancestors who made it so that we can exist. And by virtue of existing, we do become this bridge. I don't know if that resonates with you around like being this connection point between. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I was just booked to do a talk on Loving Day in June for the Lovings family, one of the most well-known biracial couples. But what's really fascinating to me, and I'll share that when I do that talk, my parents were married more than tears before the loving, you know, so this has been going on a really, really long time. And I'm glad that there is a place where it is being um, celebrated and talked about. And now it's a reason to talk about it in companies. There's a day about it. You know, we think about these things, oh, another day, who needs another holiday or another, you know, topic to talk about, but they really do resonate with so much meaning because there are so many people who will connect to it when they hear it. And there are so many people who just don't know about it. And in knowing about it changes their perspective. Yeah. And it's not something that we can rely effectively on that our school system will teach or continue to emphasize as as our history. Yeah. So it is so powerful. What a great day to be speaking on such a topic. We've come through a lot and yet there's still a lot that we can do to help kind of bridge these differences and bridge these sides. I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier about how it has affected, you know, the companies that I worked with. And it's had an effect in a lot of ways. When you work in the fashion company, you're designing colors of things for colors of people, whether it's fashion or beauty. And you think about the why, well, first and foremost, companies are trying to make money and actually you're leaving a lot of money on the table, right? So if you just think of it from that pragmatic approach, this is one really good reason to start thinking and talking about this. It just recently became more readily available, expanded shade tones of foundation or colors of underwear, things like that. And even an understanding that you need different colors of underwear for different colors of people. Otherwise they can't wear white clothes because when you put white clothes over too darker of a color, it's not, it's going to show through. And again, you, I've, I've even had conversations in company about like that fact is like, you know, mind blowing to some people. And so I think when you think about it from that perspective, there's money being left on the table And then in fashion companies, we talk about, oh, this is what the blonde girl will wear. This is what the brunette will wear. We never talked about what the coily haired girl or the brown girl or the, you know, we never talked about that. But that's a huge market share. African-American women are the, they spend more money on their hair than any other group of person. And yet most companies leave that money on the table, right? Like it's such low hanging fruit. And so talking about this, and again, how do you approach it within a corporation? The money starts the conversation, right? You can you can get there from that method first. And then again, that just helps other things happen within the community. Mm-hmm. And did you see, so you've been in an industry for a, a long time prior to starting your skincare company. Did you see some 
tangible evolution from the time that I mean, I hope so. But what what were some of those evolving examples <laughs> of considering more perspectives, more diverse options? You know, from the 90s until, you know, late in the 20 teens, I would say not a lot. And that's surprising. You would think there would be some. But there was usually just like the TV show, one, if any, Black person in the photo shoot. Just imagine Friends was in the 90s. There were no Black people on the show. So there was a lot of places where there was none and evolved meant you had the one. And that really changed really later in the teens. And I think one of the big contributing factors, and you can think what you will about the Kardashians, but the fact that they started having biracial children and one day I picked up Vogue and they were on the cover with biracial children, that is a culture no matter what you think about these people. They are now making us popular culture. And I thought that sent a chill up my spine. Wow. I was going to ask, what was the change? And because it does take something, some pop culture moment like you referred to just then or some pivotal moment like as you were referring to George Floyd from 2020, it's something that pushes people to take notice and say, this is happening now. This is happening in real time. What are we going to do to respond? And that's when companies make that shift. And I feel positive even not being in the industry to see more representation in campaigns, to see more gender neutral options. And there have been a few companies that have been leading the way there. But it's nice to know that there's some evolution and the fact that it's slow. That that is something that we can all acknowledge and feel deeply yeah. and looking changes. As we're talking about coming back to the biracial experience and there's going to be, I don't know the exact data, I'll look it up, but more brown people than white people in the year, what is it, like 2045? We're taking over. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's happening. It's happening. And now that you've had your own exploratory journey, you've you've coached and mentored other women with this biracial journey. What do you think that society needs to know to better understand and support the experience of biracial or mixed race, racially ambiguous sometimes individuals? I think we have to internalize that there's going to be more pushback before we move ahead. That's a cycle of things in change that we don't often acknowledge. We're like, oh, we had this thing happen, so now it should be all over, and it's never the case. My favorite one is the conversation I had with my father, who was a very early civil rights activist, long before the 60s. We had a conversation about gay marriage in California. It had passed, and then it got repealed. And I said, what do you think about this? And he's like, oh, this is normal. This is exactly how the cycle works. And then, of course, it got approved on the U.S. level. Of course, he didn't live for that day, but he was absolutely right. When you live long enough, and again, this is about the intersection of generations, you start to see things in a longer view and you start going, no, this is just part of how it happens. And if we would listen to those people, as opposed to just living in our own little like 20, 30 years of whatever our life is, we would know that, no, this is part of the process. And so I think one of the things we have to do right now is expect a lot of pushback. We're seeing some already in a number of ways. And to understand that doesn't mean we stop fighting and we stop moving forward and we stop having these conversations, but understand that as part of the process to get us to our ultimate goal, which is the takeover. And it's going to happen. And it's just inevitable. I mean, when we look at the movements and the cycle of movements, your dad and now you are exactly right that it is this cycle. I think the more we can remind ourselves of that and look at the data behind it, the timelines behind social change, it helps us to not... Be give up hope. 
and feel defeated and helpless. So that's where I wanted to shift to next is, is what are you hopeful for? Knowing that this, this is a process, it goes up and down like this, but we're moving. <laughs> What's giving you a hope right now? Yeah, we're on track. That's what I think. I think we're on track. And I think, again, if we start merging this, these gen- intergenerational conversations, you'll have the immediacy of what's happening now with the younger generation with this overarching perspective of an older generation. And I think that together, you know, no one's ever blended that. How powerful can that be as we move these movements along and really change culture, change how businesses are organized, change who's on a board and who isn't on a board. I had a conversation this morning about with a black woman who's like the only on the board. And I'm talking to her about like, how do I get to be the other only on the board? Crazy because they don't want you on until you are one. And then once you are one, then they just want to use you over and over again, rinse and repeat. So, you know, it's about breaking down those barriers. And as I say, I think intergenerational contact has a lot to do with that. I think we can learn so much from each other. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about that in terms of, well, you've, I'm sure, led cross-generational teams, you mentored cross-generationally, especially with young young adults too. And so what are some of the ways you've seen that work well? What can we do to work across generations more effectively and take each generation's experience into account? Yeah, I think in corporations, it starts with HR. I think there's got to be a directive in HR to allow older workers into the workplace at all levels. You're supposed to be young and you're here and then you're building and you're growing your career and then you're old and you're with all the old people up here. You know? <laughs> and then there actually becomes a ceiling because there's only so many seats at the, at the table at the top, especially for women and even more so for women that are of color. So then there's no place to go at some point. So we've got to work on that piece. And that's one side of it. But also, there are some young people that could really be at a board level in a very young age. And that would be interesting. That would change boards in a big way and point out places where they're leaving money on the table and where they could take action in new ways. And then there are old people, and I was talking to someone just a few days ago who wants to start back at an, in a new career at a new level, and some universities are beginning to address this, but HR isn't accepting that. Even though they're not talking about it, that's technically not allowed in their organization, they are actually behaving in that way because you're not seeing a lot of 50-year-olds at an entry level in a new career. You're just not seeing it. So I think those, I think that starts in the corporation, right? You have to kind of get that HR team, which is reflect a reflection of the company, right, on board with, yeah, that's going to benefit us. And we've got to show those benefits happening by having some point of intergenerational contact that leads to a huge business aha and success. Um, and then, you know, then it goes from there. And then young new companies have to also bring in older people that can show them, oh yeah, you're fighting this cycle right now, but actually look at this longer view. It actually looks like this. And that might change you know, the way they're spending time on things, knowing that it's going to get there anyway, if we just keep going, as opposed to just like fighting in the moment. There's a lot of wasted energy on that. So I think you know, it's going to be a multi-pronged process. I don't think there's one way to do this. Um, it's going to take young people who are starting companies to do things more established and behave differently. And then there has to be a net positive gain for the company 
in terms of revenue and profitability for it to be really worth their while. Well, I love that you positioned it as starting with HR, starting with bringing the talent in and changing mindsets around what makes a good entry-level hire and what makes a good board-level executive and redefining what that looks like does, I mean, it starts with HR and then it starts with education of those hiring managers to help them. But then, yeah, the ROI, how quickly can we come in with a quick win pointing at this model, pointing at the value of diverse generational perspectives to make the final product as cohesive as it can be. So I wanted to ask, you've been, you've led cross-generational teams. What have you found works best when you are bringing in these different perspectives? How can you hear from all sides or what has your experience been in creating high-performing teams that are multi-generational? You know, it's tricky. It's getting people to listen to each other. It's allowing people to make mistakes. Um, You you have to lead from where you're open. Um, You're open to listening from the most junior person at the table. And when they have a good idea, calling it out. Also listening to the most experienced person on the table. They have a new idea, you know, because the old people aren't supposed to have new ideas. They're just supposed to know how it was and calling that out. And I think that has to happen in rooms where everybody is there together, but again, allowing people to make mistakes in that as well. I always start with calling out my own mistakes. Um, So then there's a culture that it's okay to make a mistake, say, oh, I really screwed that up. You know, that little, little statements like that resonate. And then people go, oh yeah, Grace, I made a mistake and I I tried this and it didn't really work. Okay. Well, that's fine. You You know, again, mistakes are part of the process. They are, and at all levels too. So permission to, as as the oldest person in the room, not mm-hmm. have every single answer. But I loved in your New York Times article at one point the uh, the journalist said that you and Michael make a practice of not dismissing the opinions of younger people in your lives. And I think that's so powerful is because how often do we do that to different generations? Like you just don't get it. But what if we tried? And what if we opened up with that curiosity and and it helped yeah. your love life yeah. and it also helped <laughs> just I'm sure how you showed up for your teams and led them it sure it. did and I think it is one of the things that's attracting each of us to each other is that we don't just limit ourselves to our generation you know we do respect all generations I think all the time who do I know who's under 10 who do I know that's under 20 who do I know that's under 30 you know I go through the decades and I try to have people in all the decades because, you know, our one-year-old grandchildren are teaching us as much as the oldest person we know. Mm-hmm. Just imagine if we applied that to our workplaces. What do you see as the biggest challenges women are facing in the workplace with regard to ageism? I think it's really that that pool for positions gets smaller and smaller as you make your way up because they held on to those jobs the most. They're letting some fill in at the beginning and in the middle, but when it gets to the top, it's more sparse. And so I think, you know, women have to be build their own companies. The women have to push through that and find their way in and then bring other women in. It's going to take time for that to happen. There's no quick fix here. How did you approach that in running your own company. So you had Biofile and co-founder was a woman too, creating the culture of your company from the ground up. You know, I thought about the things that because of my age, I didn't know as well. And I do always try to learn all the things from all the different eras. Um, 
But I thought, well, then let me find the youngest person for that, as opposed to, you know, the most experienced, because sometimes that person is going to know more because they're digital native or, you know, whatever way that they're going to interact with that in a way. But then I'm also going to say, teach me, I want to know, and then I'll bring what I'm, I know and my wisdom to it as well. And I think that's how I approach finding people to work with is looking for what they, sometimes it comes with age and sometimes it comes with youth and sometimes it comes with talent. You know, it, it can be various things along the way. And that's how I find that I created a diverse group around, you know, the team of Biofile. When you think of, you have to have all these different types of people in your organization, you know, where are their men? Where are their women? You know, sometimes I felt like men sometimes always got relegated to finance and the warehouse. And I thought, that's not right. I couldn't always figure it out, but I knew like, oh, this is a pattern. It's a systemic pattern, right? Why can't a woman run a warehouse? Why can't a man run a social media company? There's just certain things that it's hard to break outside the box, but as long as you're thinking about it, it means there's more possibilities. And I think that's what we can do. Mm. Yeah. When you mentioned, you know, we have the, we have a certain perception because of the society we're raised in, because of the air we breathe, what does it look like to take a, a step back and just flip that on its head? So, so helpful in hiring practices. And also, I'm sure once you can really leverage and amplify each of those strengths, helps make a really strong culture of collaboration and success within the team. How did you do that? How did you take this this diverse set of team members and focus on collaboration and running a successful skincare brand? You know, I think it's all about creating relationships among the cross-functional partners. We didn't have anyone that worked for us. Almost everyone was a consultant, right? When you're a small company, you try to keep your company lean as possible without payroll. So, you know, finding ways for the different consultants to interact with each other, to help each other, that was a big part of it. You know, having full team meetings, even though they're not technically on your payroll, that expects them to show up for 15 minutes or half an hour that they're not necessarily getting paid for in their contract, but what it's going to mean ultimately for them to do better work is so much more. And so I think once people saw that, they were more than happy to join a team meeting. Yes. That feeling of being connected to what's going on, making it easier to do your own job, to see where the gaps are and where those ideas exist too. And you were in several retail stores across many countries. Now that you're in this transitionary phase, I wanted to hear more about the work you're focused on now and where, you, where you're going from here, with this breadth of experience and new focus area. Well, it really is a transitional phase. I really always start with what I know and what I know is how companies run. And so I work with a number of companies, both in the beauty and fashion industry, and I really am trying to help them, you know, increase their ROI. That's ultimately what a company needs to do. But within that, this platform of um, DEIB that's been bubbling up in my world is also helping companies produce higher ROI. So I'm not seeing that as separate from that. I'm seeing that as part of it, as part of the whole. And because I'm more willing to share my story, I'm putting it out there on LinkedIn. I'm telling, I'm talking about it in fireside chats at companies as I move forward. And the way you really look at it through the lens of senior executive for many, many of the world's largest fashion brands, and also as a CEO, ROI 
in concert with DEIB rather than as two separate entities, which I think a lot of companies need some mindset shift around. Is It's not subtractive. It is additive. The data shows it. Your bottom line will show it, but let's make it so crystal clear that there's no question around where your investment is going. It's the right thing to do. There's the moral investment, and then there's the actual financial gains from investing in a diverse workforce that feels inclusive and equitable. A lot of companies are, they're not there yet. No, I think there's a lot of lip service being played because they know that they should look this way. And so when I lead with ROI, I think it's shocking to them. Like, oh, there's somebody who's talking about diversity, but starting with ROI. Because I know how a company needs to run. It's important that you do that. And if I show them the limitations with them to expand into this more and invest in this more. Mm-hmm. And storytelling goes such a long way in that too. It goes such a long way in that too in terms of you know, we've got the data, we've got the case for it, but then we've a the real life execution of creating diverse and inclusive teams that you've done and and high-performing environments and a high-performing company. So I think there's so much value that you add from your unique perspectives that make it easier to digest this work and the fact that this work takes such a commitment and such such a long period as we as Yes, I hope so. I really I'm trying to stay innocent of the tri- typical path into DEI because I think that's covered. And as I said, I think there are some things that are limiting about it. But if I come in with just who I am and with the knowledge that I have, uh, the money I've seen left on the table, and this can be yours. I've actually talked about this with a banker friend of mine who's reviewed my decks on what I show my customers. He's like, yeah, they're going to resonate with that. You know, they're going to get that. And I think that's important. And that's what makes me different. Yeah, paving your own way, paving your own way to help companies from your unique vantage point. And what I also appreciate about you, Grace, in so many ways is your vulnerability and the way you show up with vulnerability to this work, but just as a person and as a leader, embracing vulnerability. And what has that journey looked like for you? You know, for a long time, part of my place in white culture was to always come across as the winner. Here I am, I'm doing it right. I'm winning. I'm getting the promotion. I'm getting more money. It's always something more. When I went through a really difficult time last year, I started to talk about that. And in talking about that, I found so many people related to the problems that happen along the way. So vulnerability, when I closed Biofile and put it out there into the world, got me my first client. And to them, it just felt like, oh, she's available. You know, that's how they saw it. Not that, oh, she did, this didn't work out. Like, oh no, we can use her for this. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then when I wrote the post at the end of the year, it kind of circled back to where we were at the beginning and talked about my fiance, now husband, having a heart attack and closing the company. And that got picked up by the New York Times. I realized, oh my gosh, my vulnerability is what is the thing that people want to expand on. And so many people since that New York Times article have come to me and say, you know, how brave you are. And I'm like, but all of us have these stories. I'm not the only one. I'm just telling them. And what that's doing is making people connect and making people want to help you more. Because once you outline what you need, just as I did when I closed the company, people will come in and say, oh, let us help you. Or Can you help us? And that's what I've been finding is happening. The more people either try to help me 
or want me to help them. Oof. What an advertisement for vulnerability. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying it's not difficult sometimes to put it all out there. I like to sleep on those posts before they go out and think, can I really say this? But in the end, I am never, never disappointed. People understand. People want to connect to that. People want to offer help. You know, people want to work with you because you're authentic. It's great to share that too, but it's not all of us. Yeah, it's that peek behind the curtain that we all have of when we messed up or fell flat on our face and actually turned that into something great. People want to hear about that. Like you said, not just the trophy, but the journey it took to get to that trophy. Yeah, yeah. And it always took a journey. There was never, there's never been a time when it's just been a story without something going on behind the scenes. And that's, isn't that the interesting part, right? Isn't that what gives us our humanity? It's my favorite part to listen to. I think it's all of our favorite parts to listen to. Well, as we're winding down the conversation, Grace, thank you so much for being here. I wanted to ask a couple more questions, one that we always end the show with, which is who trailblazed the path for you? Wow. There are still people trailblazing the path for me now. I had one woman who was the president of a company when I was a first had become a vice president and she did not see my color and she did not see my race or my age. She just saw somebody who could get it done and put me into a position on the next level. And I am forever grateful for that because I now realize how rarely it is done at that time. Again, I wasn't looking at from the perspective that I'm different, but as I look back at it now, I definitely do see that it was very special. Um, I'm currently in a cohort working with Regina Jackson, who is one of the authors of, uh, or one of the founders of Race to Dinner and the book White Women. And, you know, she is helping me on my self-actualization as a biracial Black woman. And that is a really important thing that I think I'll probably always be working on. And that's the journey. That's what we're supposed to do. We're always supposed to be discovered deeply who we are. It's fun. That's the fun part, I think. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's never, you never want to stop learning. You know, somebody much younger that I do work with, she said, Grace, the thing about you is you're always looking to learn. And I think that's what we always should be looking to do. Why don't we want to just keep learning more things? Well, your perspective, let's make it contagious because so much wisdom to share <laughs> about how we can we can better have these conversations. We can better work and collaborate with one another and just see the joy and the light at every moment. So I will share your LinkedIn and, and other ways people can connect, but any ways that you would like to share around how people can support your work? Yeah, I would suggest people follow me on LinkedIn. Um, tell me what you like and tell me what you don't like. Um, and to connect to work with me, it's probably best to DM me on LinkedIn. Perfect. So I'll share that. And Thank you for being here today. Thanks for all of your insights that you shared. We'll share how to get in touch with Grace. But Grace, it was such an honor to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Sarah, it was so great to have this conversation with you. You are a very special person and my biracial sister forever. Oh, thank you. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Trailblazing in Color podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. 
don't forget to hit subscribe for future episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram at, at trailblazingincolor and at trailblazingincolor.com slash podcast. The Trailblazing in Color podcast is created and executive produced by me, Sarah Chapman Becerra. The Trailblazing in Color podcast season one production team includes Alicia Archer and the podcast Bestie team, led by Angie M. Jordan and supported by Gene Credit and Sarah Decker. Our theme song was composed by Troy Chapman. Thanks, Dad. Thank you.